Time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky thing, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, the author of a uh, new book called From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement, which, uh, for those of you who didn't know, uh, is celebrating a 50th anniversary in 2021. The author is uh, Judith Pearson, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Judy. Welcome to the show. Hey there. Good morning. Um, Where are you calling from? I am sitting in sunny Phoenix. (laughs) Although for me, it's still cold. It's only like 60. Brr. (laughs) we're in single digits judy but you remember that because you're actually from this area i i did live in that area that's right yep and so i i'm sorry for your for your pain and you can (laughs) laugh at me this summer when it's 120 here (laughs) yeah i lived out in los angeles for a while in uh, simi valley and uh I think the first Sunday I was in my my little studio apartment and I saw that the um, temperature on TV and the news on the mor- in the morning said it was going to be 119, and I thought <laughs> I I went immediately to uh, Home Depot or Lowe's or someplace and uh, got a window air conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I, I think I was back by nine o'clock. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the book, uh, From Shadows to Life, um, what, what is it about the cancer survivorship movement that warrants a biography? 
Well, um, and if I could just correct you just a tad, what's, what is being, what is 50 years old this year is not the movement, okay. but rather President Richard Nixon signing the National Cancer Act and declaring war on cancer. Um, he even promised to cure it by the bicentennial, um, and he did so to be reelected. He, he needed something to um, overshadow the Vietnam War, which he had also promised to end, but that didn't happen either. So as a result of that... He had a lot of um, things go wrong, though, in all fairness. He did, he did. He had a lot on his plate. <laughs> um, so as a result of this unprecedented amount of money being funneled into research, so $1.3 billion in 1971 was just unheard of. But because of that, um, more people began to survive. Prior to that... You know, if you got a cancer diagnosis, you had, on average, about a 40% chance of living. So it was pretty grim. More research meant um, better treatments um, and learning more about cancer. And, of course, by the bicentennial, cancer was still killing and Nixon was gone. But um, more survivors, people who survived beyond the, the end of their treatment, um, the, the numbers were growing. And... Up until that point, cancer was considered, up until really the mid-80s, cancer was still so unknown, it, some people believed it was contagious. Um, and that still was the case um, into the 80s. So cancer survivors lived as social pariahs in the shadows. And um, it wasn't until 1986 that a group of people got together and said, this has to stop. And that's the survivorship movement that they launched. Used to be people were reluctant to even use the word cancer because it was, you know, virtually considered to be a death sentence. Right. Yep. And it was, it was, you know, it conjured up thoughts of, of puny patients and smelly disease. And even though, even today, Cancer is not the number one co number one killer in this country or in the world. Um, in this country, it's heart disease. But cancer is still the terrifying diagnosis. And it's it's even just that word. So the idea that survivors were coming out and and creating awareness about not just cancer but different kinds of cancer um, is really significant. It is. It is. They kept likening um, the those who were um, on the on the political side, the non-science side. So everybody who wasn't a scientist kept saying, "Well, we've just landed a man on the moon. Why on earth? What is the reason that we couldn't cure this disease?" And um, one of the doctors said that to to liken cancer, a cure for cancer to landing a man on the moon is like sending up a rocket ship without understanding gravity. So, you know, what we did learn um, with more research was that cancer is not just one disease. It's, it's a hundred or more diseases. And, um, and, and therefore, it's not like um, Jonas Salk's polio vaccine that eradicated polio in one fell swoop. That just isn't possible with cancer. And if I could, Tom, I just I just want to share um, as well with your listeners one of the things that the organization that those people founded in 1980 or 
1986, which is called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. One of the first things they did was define survivor. Up until that point, there was this moving goal line. You couldn't be a survivor unless you were five years out or three years out or 10 years out. And they said, this is stupid because if you survive five years and at five years in one day, you get another diagnosis, does that erase your survivor stripes? So they said they created this now medically accepted definition that a person becomes a survivor at the moment of diagnosis because that's when you start surviving cancer and you are a survivor for the balance of your life. So it doesn't matter if you have metastatic disease or if you have to live with your cancer or you're told you have no evidence of disease, which is the term we use um, as opposed to cure. It doesn't matter. You are a survivor. I like that. When I got my diagnosis and I learned that, and I was like, yay. <laughs> yeah, I have a pulmonologist that uh, sticks with the five-year rule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he says, I'm not going to say that you're, you know, you're cured until it's been five years. Yeah. Well. What was, when, when and what was your diagnosis, Judy? I was diagnosed um, 10 years ago this April. Um, I, and, and so, you know, that is a great milestone, um, particularly for the kind of breast cancer I had. It's called triple negative. It only affects about 15% of the total, or it's only about, makes up about 15% of the total breast cancer diagnoses. And it's triple negative because it, it, it's not hormonally driven. And therefore, the traditional chemotherapies and the um, drugs that are taken after the initial treatment has ended, those don't apply to me. And, um, and ironically, it most often strikes younger women, women of color, and women of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. I know for a fact I'm not the first two. And I, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think I have any Ashkenazi background. I'm, I'm certainly not aware of it. So it's, it's a rather rare diagnosis for me to have. And, um, I just, I made a deal with God. All right. If I survive, I'll, I'll do something with this. Just tell me what to do. And he said, write a book. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I'm a writer. I'm a writer by profession. I'm a biographer and um, just couldn't find the next great story. So I started a nonprofit. And as a result of that, I met one of the individuals, a woman who was uh, one of the founders of the NCCS. And um, three years later, here we are. And what, um, now that this organization exists, what is the, the mission of a coalition for cancer survivorship? So initially, again, let me take you back to, to 1986. And um, for those of you who are listening who can remember that far back. Um, it was a pretty know, good year, talking, as I remember. <laughs> we're talking cell phones and, you know, looked like bricks. And uh, the fax machine was just being born, and that was like major technology. So, um, and, and computers were all DOS-driven. So it was, oh, and there were big shoulder pads. 
Dynasty was the big TV show. So we're, we're talking quite a while ago. Um, so at that time, no one, as you alluded to earlier, no one was discussing survivorship. It was, it, it, it just, we didn't talk about cancer, so why should we talk about survivorship? So when this group, um, two people really sort of started the call out to create this group, and of the hundred or so letters that they sent out, these 23 people responded. And um, when they when they came together, they all had a relationship to cancer in some way. There were survivors. There were people who had started. Um, although not very many, small support organizations. There were um, people in the medical field, and and some were all of those things or were survivors and doctors. Um, and they just fell into one another's arms, one of the doctors described. He, he, it was the first time they'd been together he, that they each of them had been able to speak so freely about their experience. So they thought, they rightly so, that the the logical thing to do was to have annual events um, to bring together survivors. And they did that for 10 years. They they really attracted um, a remarkable number of speakers. They were three-day events, so they had um, um, actors who had been diagnosed. Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, spoke for the very first time about her own um, breast cancer diagnosis at one of these assemblies. And and so that that was great, but in order to have one of those, you know, people had to fly in from other places. Um, <clears throat> there's a great deal of financial toxicity even today that goes along with a cancer diagnosis, but it was especially so at that time. So the the assemblies were not reaching enough people, and they realized in the mid '90s that in order to because you could be fired if you had a cancer diagnosis. If you had health insurance, it could be terminated. People were divorcing spouses and declaring bankruptcy so they didn't bring the whole family down. And so this this group realized that in order to really make an impact on health care and discrimination legislation, they need to, needed to be at the doorstep of where those things are decided. So they moved to Washington, D.C., and, and now they exist and are doing all these wonderful things um, in advocacy, despite the fact that their name isn't as well known as the American Cancer Society or Komen or the American Lung Association. Um, and, and the movement goes on. I mean, this book is as much a story of the birth of a social movement. You know, it was at the time that we had just um, sort of gotten to the apex of, of the women's movement and and we had the civil rights movement and the AIDS movement was certain or gay rights movement was certainly going on. This was a grassroots social movement that ended up having a march on Washington with 200,000 people in attendance. Yeah, I want to talk some more about that and, and about... Um uh, and about your book, um, but I have to go to break. Can you stick around for a few minutes sure. so we can talk some more? I'd love to. Great. I'll get more coffee. <laughs> Good idea. Um, my guest is uh, Judith Pearson, and uh, Judy and I will be back after we let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages Everybody's as well. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Tom Summer. Program.com.
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm talking with the author of a, a new book called From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement by Judith Pearson. Judy, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. <laughs> no problem at all. Um, Judy, we were talking a little bit about the um, National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship and and the fact that it was founded in 1986, but also the War on Cancer, which was declared um, by signing uh, the signing of the National Cancer Act by Richard Nixon in 1971, 50 years ago. And um, I have in my notes, I keep saying that, you know, you've written this book. I have in my notes that it drops, as they say, on March 2nd. That's correct. And so it it will be available then. As a writer, um, who did you imagine you were writing this book for? Um, you know that's that's a funny question because, um, as I said before, I'm I'm a writer by profession. I'd written biographies about ordinary people who had done extraordinary things during World War II. I I just love World War II, and um, so. I, I really viewed this as as another biography and and you know that it worked um, that it was about history and it was about war, <laughs> which was sort of my forte and and it actually um, is a group biography because it would have been I couldn't have told the story well with just one person, but neither did I want to use all twenty three of them. So this follows. Um, a few who were there at the beginning, and then as they kind of phased out, a few more stepped up. So it's it's a group biography, which for a writer um, really works well because it makes the book move along. And I, you can't say to the public or a publisher, oh, everyone's going to love this book. This book is for everyone because that would be great, but we know that's kind of silly. So, well, at least that's what I was told. So I presume <laughs> one can still hope, I, Judy. That's right. So I presumed there are there are 17 million cancer survivors in the United States. Not to mention all of the other millions in in English language English speaking countries. So I thought, okay, 17 millions. If 10 percent of them buy and read this book, that would be great. But then there's also their co-survivor, the person that went through the the whole disease with them so all right that's 34 million but then there's the oncology community the doctors the nurses the social workers the psychologists and so i thought okay that's a good chunk of america i'll take that but in in the early interviews that i've been doing since we're still a couple of weeks away before um the book publishes what people have said to me, people who have no relation to cancer, what they've said to me is that it was an eye-opening um, moment in history, you know, when, it, when all of a sudden um, cancer was brought out of the shadows, that's the title of the book, but just the history itself of how this massive part of American society was disregarded. And so 
now I'm back to thinking, well, I guess maybe it could be for everyone. <laughs> and well, that makes me feel good. Part of the idea of the book, I think, is to draw attention to an organization that has grown dramatically since 1986, but is still not as well known, as you said in the last segment, as, as some of the the others, uh, the American Cancer Society and, and uh, the American Lung Association, etc. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, and their history had never been told. And um, again, the work that they did on all levels, I mean, it, it seems it seems almost unimaginable to us today that that you could be fired for a health diagnosis. Yet we know that that happened certainly um, with AIDS. We know now, as a result of this book, that that happened with cancer. And so, I think there there's a there's a wonderful um, saying etched in the stone above the doors of the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., which every time I write a book is my second home. And the saying is, the past is prologue. And as a writer, I always write prologues for my books. But I think, I think that, that that's a really important thought as well, because what it means is, Everything that we've learned up until this moment in time prepares us for going forward. And I, I hope that um, that's what this book does, that it prepares, it, it just educates um, people, not necessarily to prepare for their own diagnosis, that's such a dire sounding thing, but it just prepares people or, or teaches people that um, the Margaret Mead saying about never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And and this is a great example of that. And 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 I want to touch on this this one point that that um, that haunts me occasionally when I when I hear or read um, people that that believe this notion that somehow there is a cure for cancer or could be a cure for cancer if not for big pharmaceutical companies who have determined that it makes more money to treat cancer than to cure it. Um, it what do you think when you hear those comments? Well, and, and you know, I, I have to admit, I that actually crossed my mind at, at one point in time um, early on in my own survivorship. But now we have a great many private companies that are doing research, um, genomic research. There's a big one here in Phoenix called TGEN that is doing marvelous research. And... Um, and really private organizations like that, private research organizations, came to light back in um, the first decade of this century when the human genome was being mapped. And, and that was being done both by the National Institutes of Health and by a private company. So, so it seems unlikely now to me that you would have both pharmaceutical giants and these private research companies colluding together. The research companies really have, really have no uh, motivation to do that. You know, it, it, it would behoove them to better understand 
uh, cancer than to keep it from being completely eradicated. And and a cancer is simply uncontrolled, not simply, but it's uncontrolled cell growth. There's something that turns a switch in a cell and, and makes it grow uncontrollably. So if you think of the billions of cells in our body um, and and all the different types of cells, that's, that's a lot to try and cure with one pill. Well, and what's also important to acknowledge, and without uh, uh, survivorship being um, outed and, and promoted, whether it's by the National uh, uh, Coalition for Cancer Survivorship or through your book, From Shadows to Life, um, is something, the, the answer to those people that think that Big Pharma is holding back the cure to cancer. The truth is that cancers are being cured all the time. Um, they're being controlled. We don't say cure. <laughs> well, but, medical, but in, but in that, many cases, you know, in my own cancer diagnosis, for example, it was surgically removed and is gone. That's right. And then you're told um, you have no evidence of disease. That's, it, that's sort of what they, they prefer to say. Um, but, um, but you're right. You, you can, liability and, and I'm speak. in the same boat. <laughs> that's liability yeah. speak. That's right. And I'm in the same boat. Um, I have no evidence of disease. Congratulations. I didn't know you were a survivor. How long ago? Um, July. Oh, was, wow. Last July so was see, the you, surgery. You you tell your pulmonologist that an author told you you're already a survivor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will actually do that. Um, and, and and by the way, Judy, of course you didn't know. This is the first time I have mentioned it on the air. Oh wow! I yeah. I, 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 I it. was very very quiet about it. It was uh, it was diagnosed early last year, and uh, surgery was set up in July, and. Uh, I missed, uh, well, I played some reruns for a couple of weeks, and uh, for all intents and purposes, it's all done. And I, I am Good just... Good for you. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, but I didn't want to say a lot about it because I didn't want to read my obituary on Facebook. <laughs> uh, I got it. I got it. But you will be amazed. You will be amazed at the outreach now that you've outed yourself, there's a lot of people who are going to say, good for you. I was diagnosed. My father was diagnosed. It, it helps people to see and listen to others who make it to the other side. It gives hope to those who are going through the journey. But I, I was especially struck, and in, in the reason that I even mentioned it in this conversation, by how, how prepared and, and how able the healthcare providers you know the surgeon the pulmonologist you know my my primary care physician how prepared they were to address this situation and to do it thoroughly and and coming out with a you know with a positive outcome and and it all happened very quickly and you know I came away thinking you know they mean they may not have this completely licked, but they've got it on the run. Oh, certainly, and this and early detection is um, is key to that whenever possible. Well, and that and, was certainly um, the case in my case. 
That's right. That's right. What, and one of the things that, that I found so interesting, I guess, and then at the same time disturbing, <clears throat> not only with, with my own treatment, but um, in, in researching this book and interviewing people. So there's this tsunami of doctor's appointments and diagnostics and everybody's in the world trying to, you know, get this thing going and get down there and do this and do that. And then when they say whatever, whatever it is they say, you're done, and they sort of wave to you, give you a cupcake, and tell you to have a good life, now you've got this whole stretch of life in front of you, which is what should be your most important focus, but very seldom do they send you out the door with, here's what survivorship is going to be like, along with your cupcake. And so that was the other thing that, that this organization continues to do today. I mean, Tom, there are a lot of people probably right there in Michigan who who don't know that survivorship is not necessarily going to be you returning to your old life. I always say I expected the old Judy to jump out of the chemo cake, and that didn't happen. <laughs> so um, so that's the other thing that I think is, is important for cancer survivors and their their co-survivors in their, their circle to understand is that, um, you know, maybe not everything will return to normal. You know, I mean, you have scars, I have scars, but that doesn't mean we can't live our best life. Yeah, yeah, as far as scars go, I've got a butte <laughs> under my, <laughs> my uh, uh, left shoulder blade. Yeah, I bet. Um, I bet. But the the important thing to you know glean from this and and the work that uh, NCCS is doing and and that you're doing with this book is um, allowing people to understand that yeah there are changes but they're just changes right. Right. I mean, life is all about change. But I think I hear a lot from survivors about the the um, the desire to do something good for somebody. And um, when, for example, one of uh, Dr. Fitz Mullen, who is one of the the key founders of this organization and the movement, he said, um, you know, we need the veterans to guide the rookie. So the people who've already been down this path, just like, you know, a, a World War II veteran or a, a, any veteran, doesn't have to be World War II, guiding the younger, younger soldiers, the doctors teaching the medical students, um, the veterans guiding the rookies, people find at the other side of, of any catastrophe that they that there is sometimes a feeling that they just want to help others not have to go through such a tough time um i call it finding the treasure in your life wreckage and and so that's i think a really interesting outcome from something like cancer um judy what's uh what's next for you now that now that I mean I, I know you're going to be promoting the book for a while, but have you have you started on another book? 
I have. I'm, I'm in this interesting place that authors find themselves in happily, um, where I get asked this question. <laughs> and, and so certainly the promotion of this book takes precedence over um, the actual beginning of the next book. And my husband pops his head into my office periodically and says, did you finish a chapter today? <laughs> and <laughs> I, then I throw something at him. Um, but happily, um, I discovered the most amazing woman as a result of um, researching this book. And she will be the topic of my next book. And I'd like to get a little further along before I make that um, before I make that announcement. But she's um, she's really she was really amazing. And uh, I think it, it's clearly Meryl Streep's next um, next subject film role. Her next yeah her next role. <laughs> um, with how do you go about researching? something like this a movement especially one that maybe hasn't had as much written about it as other things and and people for example when you you know pick uh famous people you know from historic battles and so on to do biographies of there's usually some information that's that's been stored and you you know, just search under that name. How do you how do you go about researching for a movement? Well, I am um, a self declared research junkie. In fact, my <laughs> agent told <laughs> my agent told me one time when I was working on an earlier book, stop researching and start writing. I j- I just go down these little rabbit holes, um, but I. I, and I love researching in person, and so fortunately, I was able to do a great deal of that before um, things started shutting down. Right. Um, and and so I, it's it's just um, I, I find it fascinating. And sometimes, if you if you look up a single person, um, that person leads to other people who have other people, I just wrote an article, in fact, about writing a group biography, because each of us is the sun in our own little solar system. We have all these other planets orbiting around us, and their perspective of us is as important as what has been written about us. So I have to control myself and not get too far ahead of my skis, but um, that was a Michigan quote. You guys can get that. But... um, (laughs) But I, I just, I just find, and I'm a very organized writer, so I have to have files, and I have to have, um, I have to have a, um, a template, and I, and all of these things. That's just me. You don't have to do that to to be a writer. I have outlines, um, and one of the other elements that I think it had. It, it was hugely valuable for this book and will be going forward. I discovered um, an online platform that's part of Ancestry.com called Newspapers.com. It is a collection. They should pay me for the number of plugs I've given them. (laughs) It's a a subscription-based website, and it is a collection of literally tens of thousands of English-language newspapers 
all the way back to the 1600s. There's there's wow. British newspapers, right? Um, so being able to find newspaper articles written um, at the time about which I'm writing is great. Case in point, there was a single column, but from top to bottom article about the American Cancer or the uh, American Cancer Society's drive that year, pledge drive or fundraising drive, the one single column, and then the other three columns top to bottom were a Marlboro ad. <laughs> and this was a this was That's a paper funny. from the sixties or seventies. Yeah. I mean it was just like, wow, this is crazy. Um but, but at that but time, in, it would not have been unusual to see oh, a doctor not. walking around in a hospital smoking a cigarette. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but the other great thing, so it gives you um, great juxtaposition, uh, you know, puts you in the mindset of the era. But the other great thing that these newspaper articles were able to do um, was to get it gave me the ability to find quotes um, of people who the founders of this organization and and some of those who came after who who died who are no longer with us so I was able to you know get a direct quote hope, hoping that the writer quoted accurately even though that person um, was not there to give it to me so the internet is is a great source. Um, of information, many universities um, w- had the forethought of doing oral histories of people, and those um, are often accessible online. Nothing for me will ever take the place of being in an archive or a library or a <clears throat> or a um, you know a, a museum that has archives. Well, Judy, it's a real pleasure talking with you and and uh, getting to know you a little bit. Although I feel like in some ways we kind of know each other already from uh, the people we have in common from your days in Flint. But um, I always give guests an opportunity uh, to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. It's Judith L. Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N, dot com. And I had to use my big name, as I used to call it, um, because there are other Judy Pearsons who are writers. So if you if you look for a book by me and there's either animals on the cover or it talks about marriage counseling, that is not me. I don't know anything about that. Um, <laughs> it's Judith JudithLPearson.com. And you can read the prologue to this book and my other books. And the book is available, uh, will be available in print and um, an ebook version uh, on Amazon.com. Have you and thought, the book is From Shadows to Life. Have you thought mm-hmm. about doing an audio book? Uh, yes, that, that also will happen. Yep. Will, you, will you be doing the, uh, the read for it? I hope so. I hope so. I'd really like to. The The other books were recorded um, by the audio publisher, and as a former um, voiceover girl and radio girl, I was very dissatisfied with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, unfortunately, yes. we have to end it there, Judy, but thanks so much, Judith Pearson, the author of From Shadows to Life. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. 
And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490.
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickerson. <laughs> What's what's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato? salad. I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find a mate for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Hand me my Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? 
Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary.
time is the right time Isolated, I think all that 
Zajic, Don't Touch That Dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.